Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Paddler's Playbook, a kayak fishing experience. Brought to you by Mariner Sales, providing the largest selection of kayaks and kayak accessories since 1975. Real sportswear, get out on the water and wear what the guides wear. Galveston Redfish Series, the largest, most affordable redfish series on the Gulf Coast. Sign up today. Pure Fishing, home to the world's most trusted fishing brands. Now it's time to sit back, relax, and enjoy the paddle with your host, Drew Turner. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Podcast Land. I'm your host, Drew Turner, and this is another edition of the Paddler's Playbook coming to you live from the sunny, beautiful Lake Conroe, Texas. It's finally sunny outside, guys. We had what felt like a month of rain. It just rained and rained and rained and rained and rained and rained. And now we finally got some good weather coming up. And I am going to take some time off of work, which never happens. I think I'm going to take three days over this Memorial Day weekend and get out and try to do as much fishing as I can. We'll see. All right. Plan to go Thursday, Friday. Monday, but we'll see how that goes. I may end up going Sunday. Sunday on Memorial Day weekend, usually everybody goes super hard on Saturday, and then Sunday a little bit mellow until Sunday afternoon, and then it gets cranked up again because they know they're off on Monday. But usually Sunday morning on the water isn't too bad. Everybody's usually hungover and not on the water. Early Sunday morning, it's usually Sunday afternoon. But I may head out Sunday. I'm going to try to go Thursday and Friday. See how that goes. If you guys follow the Paddler's Playbook on social media, you will see that I got the new Yak Attack Bunkster carts. I've been working with them to get the word out there, showing it off on the new canoe. Saltside Jess was showing how easy it was to assemble and disassemble. Check out the Facebook page. Check out the Paddler's Playbook on Instagram. That sucker keeps growing more and more people are checking out the Instagram. I'm still setting up the giveaway. I'm getting some stuff from Yak Attack, getting some stuff from Mariner Sales to set that giveaway up. Um, but I'm just going to do it on Instagram. So if you guys do not follow the Paddler's Playbook on Instagram, go ahead and do that now. Like right now, I'll wait. So just pause this, go over to your IG, type in the Paddler's Playbook, look for the logo, hit the follow button well guys on this episode i've been waiting to do this a really long time but i wanted to make sure i had the right person to do it because really this episode is about preparing fish butchering fish eating fish what to pair fish with and i just didn't want to have somebody come on that was just going to give the bro staff recipes. Because, heck, you can jump on Pinterest if you want some fish recipes. I wanted somebody that was going to be able to have a conversation and tell us why redfish goes good with this. Why you should put this with this. Why the heck does everybody put lemon all over their fish? Like, why does that work? So we'll talk about all that. The only kind of recipe that you know my guest Gerald gives is talks about ceviche he talks about what he puts in it what it originated as from Peru 
you'll you'll learn that in the episode too. But it was a really fun episode. Again, I'd been waiting to do this for a long time, but I didn't want it to be somebody that just came on and talked about, all right, this is how you fry fish, this is how you do the hush puppies, this is how you do the french fries. I wanted it to be somebody who could tell us why we're cooking what we're cooking, why restaurants are cooking what they're cooking, and just some other little tips I found out a whole lot. I may have to jump on Amazon or head up to the store to buy some stuff that Gerald talks about in this episode. But before that, you guys know it's Southside Jess. Hey, bro staff. Looking for the ultimate kayaking experience? Look no further than Mariner Sales, your go-to destination for new canoe kayaks. Their expert staff can help you find the perfect kayak to fit your needs and preferences. They offer a wide range of accessories to make your adventure even better. With new canoes, innovative modular design, and Mariner Sales exceptional customer service, you're guaranteed to have a kayaking experience like no other. So why wait? Visit them at Mariner Sales today and start your next adventure. Speaking of next adventure, Real Sportswear is introducing their Pro Plus hoodie, the ultimate performance hoodie for active lifestyle. Their hoodie is designed with moisture wicking technology to keep you dry and comfortable during even the most intense workouts. The lightweight, breathable fabric allows for a full range of motion, while the adjustable hood and thumb holes provide added warmth and protection from the elements. And with this sleek, modern design, the Pro Plus hoodie looks as good as it performs. Don't settle for ordinary gear. Upgrade to the Pro Plus hoodie from Real Sportswear today. All right, bro staff, mark your calendars for June 10th. It's time for the Galveston Redfish Series Event 3. This exciting tournament is your chance to compete against some of the best anglers in the region and show off your skills on the beautiful waters of Galveston Bay. With cash prizes and bragging rights on the line, it's an event that you don't want to miss. And with their commitment to responsible angling practices and conservation, you can feel good about supporting a cause while doing what you love. So sign up today for Galveston Redfish Series Event 3 and get ready for an unforgettable day on the water. That's it for me, bro staff. I'm Saltside Jess, and I'll see you on the Salt Side. Guys, you have been hearing Jessica talk about it all season. Get signed up for the Galveston Redfish Series Event 3 coming up on June 10th. I want to see more participants out there. I've been seeing more and more bro staff members out there at the weigh-ins entering these tournaments. I, I want to see you guys out there at the Galveston Redfish Series. This episode, guys, I have been wanting to do this episode for a very long time, but I, I never thought that I had the right person until, by chance, at the Mariner Sales Demo Days, I meant this gentleman this this huge man with this gargantuan hair and an awesome Hobie with the NK300 decked out. We got to talking. I didn't even know that this man was a chef. We were just, we were geeking out about his kayak and we were talking for a while. And then at the end of it, somebody needed to give some people some rides. So I'm like, come on, get in the truck, man. Let's go. Let's go. Well, fast forward two weeks later, and I'm posting about, hey, man, I want to talk to a chef. 
And my man Gerald Smith's name got brought up, and he's like, hey, man, I'll be on the show uh, if you if you need somebody to talk. And then, like, a week later, he's like, oh, shit. Man, we met at the Mariner Sales demo days. I, I remember. We went into it. So, Gerald, man, how you doing today? Man, I'm doing good, man. Doing real good. We we talked to a, a little bit. You were, uh, you were like turning donuts and stuff at the Mariner Sales demo days. I mean, you're, you're part of the crew up there at Mariner Sales. Our listeners, they want to know about that, that NK300, man. How's that sucker rolling? Oh, I was out on it today, man. And I, I, as far as I know, I'm the only person in, in my area that, of the kayakers that I know that's actually received theirs. And I was out there today and I haven't gotten it fully set up to foot pedal steer yet. So I, even with my drive in with the drag, and my size, I'm going over six miles an hour. That and tell, like I said, you were a large man. Like, what is your size with with the hair uh, pulled man. down, not with the hair up? <laughs> six two, three bills. Yeah, I mean, you're not you're not a small guy, and you're getting six out of that. Yeah. and it's a PA three sixty, and you yeah, got sir. dual you got dual graphs on there. Yeah. You got I the got NK. You are one oh sixes. I got you know thirty six amp. 50 battery plus a 100 amp for all the electronics. It, it can't take any more weight. And it's still pushing six miles an hour at 100. But you don't even have to go that fast. Honestly, it's, it's maybe it's me, but it's a little bit scary at that fast. I'll dial it back down to about 50% and I can roll five miles an hour, four and a half miles an hour. And that seems like a, a good number, like four and a half, five, five miles an hour. Like I feel, I feel good. I feel like I can reach over and like put my hand in the water or reach back behind me and grab something out. Now I have the, the NK 180 on my new canoe and full throttle. I was getting like 5.8, 5.9, but I don't take a whole lot of gear with me at all. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm a big guy. I mean, I'm 250. So I was still getting some, some, you know, good speed, but I don't, I don't feel like I need to go. 5.86 no. like I was dialing it back to 60 you know 65 percent and going 4.3 and that was a nice little cruising speed especially with my my foot steering like I don't I mean some of you guys you may you skinny dudes that aren't even you know making any water come up through the scupper holes at all like you guys may like going six seven miles an hour that's too fast for me I take a I take a turn too quick and I might end up in the drink I've seen some people put videos up, some little guys, and they're going over seven miles an hour. And all I can think is I'd be a little scared of that because when you when I'm getting over six, you need to stay still. You need to be going in a straight direction and we don't want to play around. Exactly. Exactly. So you're like it. You're liking that in case so far. Did you have the 180 before? I did not. This is the first motor I had. Okay, so you just went straight up to the three horsepower. You were not yeah. playing around. What kind of range are you getting with it? Is it are are you babying it to get all day fishing out of it, or are you you know like, like you said you don't like to get up to the hundred percent all the time? But are you running you know sixty percent and getting a full day? Today was the first day that I tried to just run it, run it. Normally, I'll run to an area mm-hmm. and then I'll fish the area kind of regularly. But today I actually had it stuck, you know, I'd run to an area, I'd put it on two to 5% and then just run a bank like you're in a bass boat. So I was standing up and just going a mile and a half down the bank I, I it love, ran all day. I love hearing that because that is one of the 
best things that I like about having a trolling motor on a kayak. One, it's great for when you're tired as hell and you're trying to get back to the launch and you can just prop your feet up and you can just do and you can go after a long day. But during a fishing day, it makes you so much more efficient whenever you have a shoreline that you want to hit. Like you said, set it at 2 or 5% and just let it just slowly take you along that shoreline. And you just cast, 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 cast. And you're talking about putting the uh, foot steering on there. Whenever you get the foot steering on there, it's going to be even better because then you're not even going to have to take your hand off of your rod Whenever you're yeah. casting, 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 I have the foot steering on the new canoe and it's a single pedal and I'm nimble enough, even, you know, being a little tubby, I'm nimble enough because I've been kayaking so long. I can stand up and control that foot pedal with my left foot on the new canoe and I can run a whole shoreline standing up and just pitch, throw, pitch, throw, look for tailing reds. I love it. Like if, if all you're thinking about, Whenever you're like, oh, man, those guys got motors. They're just hauling butt here and there. No, playa. It makes it so much more efficient whenever you're yeah. fishing shorelines or you're fishing a certain structure. You slowly hit it, and then you creep back. Slowly hit it, creep back. You can cover a lot of water slowly. And when I say cover water, you can <clears throat> cast and cover a lot of water mm -hmm. slowly with that motor. I'm covering five times the amount of water now than I used to. And it's great to be able to get them high speeds in the morning. If you're in a tournament, you're trying to get to that. So got bought before other people get to it, which is the primary reason that I bought a motor is because I was tired of pre-fishing and getting something dialed in. And then the next day getting beat to that spot and then trying to go to my next spot is on that one and that one. But now you can run there quick in the morning. But then I think 80% of your use out of it, at least from what I'm gathering on it so far, is going to be at 2%. Yep. And at 2%, you can run that guy for 50 hours. Yeah, you can run it for three days on 2%. Yeah. But so neither one of us started, and this is the same question I ask everybody that comes on the show. We did not start, well, you may have, but. I didn't. Okay, so neither one of us started with motors and all this stuff. So I'm going to ask you. You know, three questions, same questions I ask everybody that comes on the show. I want to know about what your very first fishing kayak was, how you got into kayak fishing, and then your most memorable fishing memory. It could be a catch. It could be something from your childhood. Just if I just asked for one great memory, what would it be? But first, let talk. tell me about your first fishing kayak and how you got into kayak fishing. My first kayak was a bona fide SS-127 about four years ago uh i came across a couple of youtube videos of guys in kayaks and it's something i'd never even seen somebody kayak fishing before um I, you know as a kid i grew up having a john boat and running you know running around the bank but i'd never seen anybody in a kayak and i instantly thought oh man this will get me off the bank and i don't have to go to my wife saying i want to get a boat even though i did end up buying a boat too <laughs> And then my, uh, the, the, the thing that really got me in, like, like I said, was just, I got, I saw it, I started fishing, I liked it. Then COVID lockdowns hit mm -hmm. and, and like a ton, you know, like we know a million people when you're sitting around and you can't go anywhere. And normally the places that I went to, to, you know, spend time with people and, and you know, just do whatever it is I wanted to do when I had a spare time, I couldn't do it anymore. 
So then it was more fishing and then more fishing turned into kayak fishing. And then it turned into, I think I should buy a boat. And then I bought a boat, even though I have a boat, I still like the kayak fish better. The boat like is more, more family. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you said that you stopped doing some of the other stuff that you were doing. What was the, some of the other stuff that you were doing? Oh, uh, well, uh, I'm a partner in a cigar apparel line. So oh, okay. yeah, I'm a cigar smoker. I've been for a long time since my internship in college. I did it in Miami and my boss took me and another intern out to the beach and handed us a cocktail, even though we were not quite that age and a cigar. And I never forget the memory of sitting on that beach on South Beach, drinking a whiskey, smoking a cigar, and I never look back. Awesome, man. Awesome. But I, I will say that the kayak fishing is probably a little bit healthier for you than sitting around drinking whiskey and smoking cigars. Although, after a good day of kayak fishing. But you can do that on a fishing, kayak, though. I was going to say, after a good day of kayak fishing, you can sit around and drink some whiskey and smoke a cigar as well. So what about, you know, one of your most memorable fishing memories? All right. Well, side note to that, I have been seen fishing on my kayak with a cigar in my mouth at every tournament I've ever been in. But my most memorable, I don't even have to think about it. So I've always grew up next to water. Uh, my mother is from Washington. She's from Seattle. And my dad is from Memphis. And I kind of bounced around a little bit as a kid. But I always grew up near water. And I had to be in the sixth grade. And my dad said, we're going to go fishing. And we'd never gone fishing, fishing before. You know, it, it was, you know, walk over down a couple blocks to the bank and throw in something. But we'd never, like, gone to a lake. And we went to go catfishing. And we went, we fished all day, a couple of different spots, a couple of different ponds. We didn't catch a single thing. Not a, not even, we didn't even see a fish. But we weren't going to go home empty-handed, at least go home and tell everybody we didn't catch nothing when we've been up since four o'clock in the morning. So we stopped and we bought a couple of catfish and we brought them home <laughs> and nobody knows to this day that we did not catch those catfish. Oh man. But I mean, they ate the same, right? Absolutely. Did you, did you prepare them at that age? Like, have you been into cooking and everything since a young age? Or is that something that, yeah. you know, you kind of grew into, into adulthood? So my dad is a chef okay. and my grandparents owned uh, bars and restaurants for almost 30 years. Um, it, like they owned a diner and a bus station when I was born in a Greyhound bus station. And I was literally in a basket behind the counter when my great grandmother was there. My grandmother was there. My mother was there. My aunts were there. When my sisters got a little older. They were there. It wasn't something that was going to make anybody rich. It wasn't necessarily a, you, you know, you're on Tuesday, you're on Wednesday. It was a things need to get done and somebody needs to be here type of thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I was dropping French fries and chicken fingers as my earliest memory. Oh, you know, wow. I made full meals. I would leave a note on the back of the toilet at night with lunch made for my mom to take to work the next day as early as like the first grade. And I'm, and I mean, like I'm cooking steaks and, Tosses and baked potatoes as far back as I can even remember. That's all. So you really, you really didn't have a choice on what you were going to do. Like you were, you were born into it. Like it is in your blood that, you know, cooking, hospitality, being a chef, all that, that that's in your blood. But I had no plans. 
or desire to do it. I was a, a pretty good high school football player. I played you know, varsity football, track, basketball, AAU, boxed, Kempo. I was going to play college football, and then things changed. And then I just sit, sit at home thinking, man, what am I going to do? I went to a junior college. I also was good at track, so I went to junior college. I was on a track team, and they had a culinary program. So I was like, well, let me just join this culinary program because I can cook. And then those teachers there saw that I had some talent. And they said, have you ever heard of the Culinary Institute of America? And I was like, no, nah, I don't even know what that is. Well, what CIA is, is the best culinary school in the world. And about two months later, I was there. That's, that's So I'm on that's a plane awesome. in New York. And I get off in New York City by myself, never been there, getting on the train, going to the, you know, the Harvard of the culinary industry. So what, what kind of process uh, to get into a school like that? Like what, what has to happen? Well, at the time, it's, it's a little different now. And now they have a couple of different campuses. They actually have, I believe, San Antonio um, right now. They also have one in California and I believe Singapore. And there might be one other, but anybody in the upper echelon of restaurants knows that CA Hyde Park, that that's the one. Mm-hmm. The other ones are, I don't want to say are fake CIA, but they're not the same. And when I went, you had to have, um, I believe it six months or a year of experience in a restaurant. And you had to have a letter of recommendation from somebody in the industry. Mm-hmm. And then you applied and, you know, a lot of people got in, a lot of people didn't. Yeah, you know, but w- but with you growing up in, in, in the restaurant industry and stuff like that, and your dad being a chef, I'm sure you already had people who have, you know, been around you that would write a letter of recommendation. Yeah. And, heck, you, you had experience from the time you were one year old. Yeah, it, it, the process for me wasn't very hard. Yeah. And then even when I got there, I tested out of a lot of things because – I could show a proficiency in them. I'm not sure exactly, you know, how they do things like that today, but it's a place where you go and there's 7,000, 8,000 kids all with the same thing in mind. And you wait and you're not allowed to enter any buildings in regular clothes. You're either in what, what chefs call whites, which is like the, you know, chef jacket pants mm-hmm. or your business casual clothes. And there's nothing like waking up in the morning and there's an AM block and a PM block. And go into class in the morning with 3,000 kids all dressed in whites. I can't. It seems like just from watching, I mean, because my, my whole um, experience with chefs and everything like a lot of other people's is just watching some of the, the shows that are on TV. Um, it seems almost very military-esque. Yeah, absolutely. Like you have your ranks. You mm-hmm. have the, you, I mean, you have your orders that you're, you're going through. You got the bottom guys, you got the top guys. Everybody's wearing different uniforms. You get different, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, like different hats and everything. It's, yeah. It, I mean, like it just seems very military esque. Well, it's interesting that you can pick that up because that's what it was designed after. So, like the modern brigade system as we know it, coming from, you know, guys like Hugo Scoffier in France, you know, 100 years ago they did run it like it was the military. It was broken down to be stations and ranks and promotions and regimented. And that's exactly the model that it was based on. 
Okay. So I, I got to ask, too, because this is going to bother me the rest of the show. Defensive tackle and shot putting disc? Tight end. Ooh, tight and, end. Okay. So you, you, got, you got some hands. Yes. And DN and then discus and hammer. Disc, I always wanted to throw the hammer. I threw a discus in track, and I could sling it. Like, I could sling, but we never had the – I always wanted to do the hammer throw and the javelin. Like, I always thought I would be able I to do this. horrible at the javelin, though. But there's no – like, there we're, in Texas, at least, where I went to school in the early 2000s, like, there wasn't – nobody was throwing hammer. Like, that wasn't an event, and the javelin definitely wasn't an event. It was shot putting disc. It's a, that's it. I wish we had wrestling, javelin, and the hammer throw. I, th- that is what I wanted to do so bad, but I could never do it. I was a shot putter younger. I was undefeated junior high both years. Um, you know, took second as a freshman in, in districts, and then I just went all discus and hammer. Okay. I was captain of my track team, you know, all that, all, all those things. So one more thing before we actually get into some of the butchery p- preparation, common mistakes, pairings, and stuff that we're going to talk about with fish today. You sent me a list of, you know, the one and three star Michelin uh, restaurants, uh, the James Beard Award winners. What does that mean? Like, because I don't, I don't know. What, I know that's good. Like, what do you have to do to get a get a Michelin star? Like, what what does that mean as as someone that's in your industry? I'm sure there's people that are listening. Like, hey, you idiot, that means it's good. Well, yes, I know it means it's good. But what do you yeah. have to do to earn that? Well, like you, you know, you often hear like five stars, right? Yeah. So five stars, five diamonds. These are ratings that come from organizations. So Michelin as well. Michelin guide was Michelin tire. And it was a travel guide in France. And it they, they denoted stars to tell you basically in your travels, whether you or not, you should stop. And like one was good. Two was worth a journey. And three was a destination. Okay. There's technically not a written rule of how to get one. And even and in modern times, they've kind of realized that you can get really good food in a hut in Singapore that costs $3 and it has no less value than a $1,000 meal in Paris. So now there are people that are getting recognized for the amazing things that they're doing that don't have that traditional white tablecloth. But when I was coming up, it was kind of thought that you had to be a you know, white tablecloth, you know, have hors d'oeuvres, have giveaways at dinner, table spacing, lighting, distance, ambiance, like all of these things were looked at in order to say you are worthy or not of one, two or three stars. And I've been very fortunate enough to be around and in restaurants at all of those levels. And the James Beard Awards is a James Beard was a guy. He was a chef. He wrote books and had all, you know, newspapers. And think of him like the male Julia Child type thing, I guess you could say, for like a regular person to get it. And he's since passed, but they give awards and categories. So best restaurant by region, best pastry chef, best executive chef, best wine program, best service, um, lifetime achievement. And also been fortunate to be either a chef culinary director or a corporate executive in restaurants and companies that have basically hit all of those as well. Now in, in the bio you sent me, New York, Vegas, Philly, Chicago, Miami, 
Dallas. Now, you see that a lot with chefs, a lot of moving around. Is that just so you can pick up, you know, more of the local flavors and bring it to a different section of the United States? Is there that much differences in the way that people are preparing food across the United States where you can pick up different things in different areas? A hundred percent. Chefs move a lot often because they're poached or they're given something to come. So I went to college in New York and then stayed and was able to be around restaurants like Danielle and John George and et cetera. And then I did my internship in Miami and then also came back later to do restaurant openings there. I moved to Las Vegas and I went to work for Thomas Keller at Bouchon and that paid $7 an hour, I believe, when I started because it's a non-union hotel at the time, but across the street, I had friends making $17 an hour. So then I had to, you know, I had to flip and go over there because those student loans <laughs> were kicking in. And then I worked for one chef, John George, that opened multiple restaurants. So then once you get, once you're in this certain kind of group of these names, like any chefs that have worked in fine dining that are listening to this, I'm sure will hear, like recognize this. Like I've talked to Dustin Nichols when I told him like where I went to college, you know, the chefs that work for us, he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know, I know those guys. Those are real deal guys. I, I know what you're talking about. And then when you want to go to the next level and become a sous chef or an executive sous or CDC, you start to put those feelers out. And so, you know, Stephen Starr in Philadelphia you know, offered to pay for me to move there and the salary increase. And so I went there. And then a similar thing. I went to work for Let Us Entertain You in Chicago. They paid for me. They paid for my significant other to come, gave us a realtor. So then you move there. And it's kind of always a, what's the next best, you know, the next step up when you're ready. Also, this wasn't like a, you know, a two-year period. You know, this was like a, a 20-year period. Yeah. Now, whenever you say saying move up, you know, to a sous chef and executives, I can't even say the word. My tongue's stopped. Look, I've been yelling at, I don't I mean, not yelling, seven and eight-year-olds all night. Shout out to the Astros who won the American League Championship tonight, 15 to 14 in the last <laughs> inning. So it's been, I've been screaming all night long. But you're talking about moving up levels. Now, is that something where, you know, you work at a certain level at this restaurant, they see your work, they see that you're good, but another restaurant may say, Hey, we'll bring you over here and we'll bump you up a level. Or like, how does it, how do you, how do you yes make no. your way up? So when you're in. The and what upper, are the responsibilities? What are like, when you move up to a sous chef, what's, what is different than, you know, the lower level below that? I mean, you could really think of it like, like any warehouse from like a guy, you know, the sprocket guy, you know, to, that moves up to, shift supervisor, you know, or lead, lead line person, then shift supervisor, then supervisor, then, you know, junior foreman, foreman. It's, it, it's very much in that, in that sense. But when you get into like restaurants that people travel for, people don't tend to leave those at the top very often. So when I worked in restaurants that maybe my boss also owned the restaurant, that was the executive chef and owner. Well, I'm never going to be the executive chef of this restaurant, mm -hmm. but it might be my time I'm, to be an exec. I might be ready for that next step. I can get into here. So you have to look for it where, where, where it is. And, and then, around. 
a, a crazy thing that I think a lot of people wouldn't even realize, man, is when you become an exec, food is about the last thing on your mind. Everything else. Yeah. Staffing, yeah it's a business. Budgets, yeah. everything else. The restaurant industry is the worst industry to ever get into. Like you don't ever buy a restaurant unless this is a thing that in your inside you, you have to do because most of them close 80% in two years. Like the failure rate for restaurants is the highest in all industries in America. But when it's in you, it's just in you and you're going to try. But then once you're an exec, food has to be good. Of course, don't like, I don't want to make it seem like you don't care about food anymore, but you care about labor and food cost Mm -hmm. and sanitation and is my dishwasher here? Because unlike a lot of industries, if you have 500 people coming tonight and no dishwasher and you're the executive chef of the restaurant, you're going to be washing dishes. dishes. (laughs) Yeah. You better, you better get to throwing some suds. Exactly. I've been the, you know, the corporate executive of a restaurant group that I had a thousand employees and we had a hundred restaurants and I'm in the dish room washing dishes or I'm cleaning out a grease trap or a toilet because that's what has to get done. Yeah. You've got to, you've got to knock it out once you get to, to that, to that level. Um, All right. So let's, let's, let's start to get down into the nitty gritty. I know people are tuned in for, they want to know about, you know, fish preparation and everything. And when me and you were talking before I told you, I don't want this show to be, just about recipes and you agreed and i thought you you said something that was pretty awesome you're like you know anybody can look up a recipe that doesn't make you a better cook like knowing recipes does not make you a better cook so in this show i really want the listeners to understand why we're cooking this certain fish this way why we're doing you know this type of uh topping on here and why we're doing this type of side now I also said I want to talk about some of the con or not not some of the cons, but some things that people do that is just it's what everybody does. Like we fry fish, we cook some French fries, and we cook some hush puppies. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you if you like that, you you love that. But you may get upset with this show because you're like, oh, all we need to do is you know, soak it in buttermilk and then we need to, you know, fry it up. This may not be the show for you. You may want to tune out now because we're going to, we're going to get a little more in depth than that. And what I want to start with, you said you're really into, you know, fish preparation and fish Mm -hmm. butchery. What are some of the most common things that you see? Because I I mean, we all see people throwing up pictures on Facebook and, you know, see people at the cleaning table, cleaning fish. Like what is some stuff as a chef that just makes you cringe because I know myself as a physical therapist, I'm always watching people walk around. Like when mm-hmm. we go to the mall, I'm watching people walk and I'm like, man, he's got the cane in the wrong hand. Like, golly. Yeah. and I'm trying not to say anything to him. So I'm sure you say some, you see stuff of course. and you're like, write it out on the Facebook comments and then erase it. And you're like, no, I'm not mm-hmm. going to be a dick today. Well, one thing I want everybody to know, if you like it, it's good. Ultimately, that's all that matters. Nobody can tell you you're doing it wrong, that that shouldn't be in that if you like it. You know, the classes are classics for a reason. But like you said, I'm not going to tell you a recipe because you can look at Google. And if you want to be somebody that can have 10 recipes in a box and, and, and you can knock all those out, more power to you. That's fantastic. I'd love to eat your gumbo. 
But if you want to think about how to become a better cook, then you said the perfect thing that you always need to have in your head. And that is the word, why? Why am I doing this? So a thing that I see all the time is that 99.99% of just regular people, their knives are dull as hell. They are so dull that when I watch people butcher fish, I'm like 30% of the fish is still on that bone, man. Like you're just wasting it. So you spent 10 hours in the heat to throw a third of what you're doing in the garbage. And that drives me crazy. And don't get me wrong. I own an electric knife too. I don't use it very often, but the worst thing is that people get the electric knife and they think cause they can go fast that they should go fast. And the next thing you know, it's, Oh man, man. You know, I messed it up a little bit right there, but it's okay. Yeah. It's, like, well, it's not a contest. Like relax and, and cut the fish, man. They're missing. They're missing that sweet belly meat. They're missing. Mm-hmm. They're missing the uh, redfish throats. Yeah. The, you know the snapper throats. They're they're missing a lot of the good stuff. For on the coast, it's the worst with speckled trout because they're smaller. I was just smaller. gonna say that because they're, they're smaller and they just rip through them as fast mm-hmm. as they can. Just also the like the the way the style in which people cut the belt just cut the belly straight out right away. You are leaving so much meat on there rather than to cut it from the back like a normal fish and take it off and then cut the belly part away and the bones away. Like just blazing through that. It's like, yeah, it was fast. But you, like I said, you're leaving you're leaving meat there, man. You're leaving groceries. Yeah, and, and again, I'm, I'm not talking down on the people who just want to have a fish fry. Like if you're just going out there, you're doing a meat hole because you're doing a fish fry at the church, like – do your thing, like keep doing that. But this show is going to be more about the guy who brings his knife sharpener to the fillet table. He's sharpening yeah. his knife. He's getting it ready. He After two or three fish, you know, he's sharpening it up again because he wants mm-hmm. to get every piece of, of that fish or he wants to perfectly, you know, butterfly open that flounder to stuff it. And mm-hmm. and th- this is going to be, be for you. So, one of the biggest things you see is just people just not just taking their butchery. time and and wasting, you know, yeah. wasting a lot of meat on those fish. Yeah. Or people that get stuck in their way of thinking, oh, man, I didn't cook. I didn't cut a thousand of these things. Man, it's like, yeah, but you didn't cut a thousand things bad, man. Like, <laughs> like you know, that saying like the perfect practice thing It's like, no, it, it's not practice makes perfect. It's perfect practice makes perfect. Slow down a little bit. Like, I'm not going to come out here and sweat and bleed to, to throw part of it in the garbage can. So when you start thinking about what you're doing, why am I doing this? It opens up things like people might get in their heads. Well, this is flounder. So flounder has to have this. It's like, think about it like this. What is a flounder like? A flounder is like a halibut or even fish that don't look like it. We're thinking firm, light, fleshed fish. So then if you're going to cook a flounder, you can cook a trout. If you can cook a trout, you can cook a bronzino. You can cook a bronzino, you can cook a salmon. So then when you start to eat out in restaurants or you start to look up recipes and you see maybe uh, like a bronzino with, you know, salsa verde and, you know, or tomato salad, you're like, well, that looks delicious. But that'll work with a flounder too. You don't have to pigeonhole yourself in. You can, you can start thinking of it as what is this similar to? And if it's similar, let's try it out. And then, Ameri- you know, the, the, the Gulf Coast of Texas isn't the only place 
that has flatfish like flounder or trout. Asia has them too. Europe has them too. So what are they doing in Thailand with flounder? What are they doing in Thailand with cod? What are they doing in Spain with cod? You you branch out. Yeah. And and it's looking at the, even though it's, it's a, like you said, a flatfish, whenever you take the fillets off, if you just think about, you know, how much meat you're getting off that fillet, whether it's a big flaky meat, you know, like you were saying, a flaky white meat, or whether it's, you know, you get smaller little portions of it, like in a trout, it's not as big of flakes, you, d- you don't get as much. Think of different fish that are the same for different regions, exactly like mm-hmm. you were saying. And I know one thing that you wanted to talk about was how red snapper and red fish are pretty similar in their in their makeup is that correct i would say like texturally like it's where i start with fish so like we know like a catfish is gonna be a little softer a little more delicate might fall apart a little bit but a piece of, of, of redfish you can grill that so if you can grill that well you can grill a piece of snapper too so if you can look at those two things like that that this is firm enough to stand up to this type of thing then you just you open up a whole you know book a load of things what you know last time you went to florida or ate on the beach in miami what what, what was that snapper dish that snapper dish could be that that red you know that, that redfish dish now so you know that mango salsa that you had somewhere or the that you know the grilled limes and and chili you can you can have that here too now you keep you keep talking about the birthday, the tomatoes, um, mango salsa. Um, now there's definitely an acidic vibe to everything that you're talking about that's going on top of these fish. A lot of times, why does that work so well? Why? I mean, everybody's squeezing lemons. You know, mm-hmm. they're squeezing lemons on their fish. Why does the acid work so well with fish? Because you don't lose the fish. If you were to take, uh, I mean, let's say something stupid, put you know turkey gravy on a piece of snapper. It might taste delicious, but does it taste like snapper? Now, if you grill that, and also we're thinking about, we didn't went and got these fish. That's a whole lot different than a day boat that's been out there that has been on ice. Then it went to a packer, then it went to a grocery store, then yes. it went to your fridge. And then you, you couldn't even kick, cook it tonight. So we're going to cook it tomorrow. That fish that we didn't got that we we're, we're filleting right now. And we're going to eat today. We're going to eat tomorrow. That that's a whole different thing. That freshness, that quality, we want to retain that. And the, the thing that leads itself best to retaining that are things that are bright things that, that, uh, that elevate rather than hide and mask and citrus of literally any type is something that will always work with fish, especially the types that we're talking about that we have access to the lighter white flaky fish. Okay. So we're talking about, you know, acidic stuff that goes on there, lighter, um, you know, maybe lighter type of seasonings. Is there, is there any seasonings or spices that lend themselves well to fish um, that that help complement it instead of overpower it? 
it, it all really depends on the direction you want to go. Like a lot of times, if I'm going to tell somebody that doesn't have a ton of experience, I'm going to usually go with the less is more, but we can go to Spain and have grilled fish with, you know, red pepper, you know, marinade on it. And it, it it's going to, or we can go to Peru and have a ceviche with, you know, you know, ahi amarillo or ricotto and lime and tomatoes and red onions. And it's, still done in a way that you don't lose the fish so it goes back to kind of what i said early on that if you like it you like it you can't go wrong if you like it but you can do things that benefit the fish more and that i think you can go wrong like the turkey gravy like don't put turkey gravy on your fish it might be delicious i don't know never tried it (laughs) okay so we're talking about like you know, throwing an acid on there, something that throwing some seasonings on there. But is there anything that you would say like, Hey, stay away from this. Like a lot of general knowledge is sometimes is like, stay away from dairy on fish or cheese on fish. Is there anything else? And why, why do we need to stay away from cheese on fish or dairy on fish? So I used to work for Marty Batali and we, we grilled a lot of fish and, you know, it was an Italian restaurant. And this is one of the early questions that I asked and me being somebody that, you know, lived part of my life in the South. I'm like, I didn't, I didn't had cheese with fish and I didn't had dairy or fish. I didn't have some, you know, a, a smothered crawfish, you know, dairy laden something yeah, or, or a ton of butter. And, and, and his explanation to me was kind of where fish usually come from. Cows don't. And that's true. true. That is the best example of it I've ever had. You know, it's one of those things where ask 30 people, you'll get 30 answers. It's the one to me that makes the most sense, but also it's not a hard, fast rule because we didn't had Parmesan crusted, you know, fried fish before, or like I said, the, the, the crawfish on top, that's got a lot of dairy in it and it's still delicious. So it's it's a it's a hard one to say don't do this because then somebody can find you a recipe. It's like but 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 it's good like this. Red wine, cheese, and dairy are the are the ones that normally people say don't do that. But also, I can find recipes that are delicious with all of those. Do you think it's because like the flavors from dairy and the red wine flavor? It's it's got a very not overwhelming, but it, you it, lose it, the fish. It, yeah, it can overwhelm. It can overwhelm a dish really quick when you're throwing yes. red wine on there. Yeah, it, it can it can smother it up. And it's funny you you're talking about the parmesan. Like I usually am like, oh, don't don't put dairy on there. But one of my favorite things to do is like a lightly breaded red snapper with mm-hmm. parmesan. And, and it's delicious. Yeah, just some panko breadcrumbs, some uh-huh. parmesan, a little bit of olive oil, and then a little bit of seasoning on the fish, and then flip it on both sides a little bit in there. And that is one of my favorite simple things to do with red snapper. And that would be one of my things that I would tell people as a simple go-to Yeah. while you just read, don't you don't eat cheese with fish. Yeah. And we're, then we're going to throw Parmesan on there. Yeah. But I, I'm also like, I'm not going to throw half a bag of Mexican blend cheese on. Yeah. Don't onto, use Velveeta. Uh, uh, yeah. On, onto the fish at all. A little bit of Parmesan. Is it, is it really going to kill it? And um, even the examples that you can find that are like that, 
Parmesan isn't, like I said, it ain't Velveeta. It's a sharp, bright, you know, lend itself towards acidic thing that plays well. And I, I'm going to spring this on you, and I didn't talk about it before, but it's it's kind of an old, a old thing. I mentioned it earlier about soaking your fish in buttermilk. And I, I can attest that if you have to freeze your fish, if you have to freeze it, I am one that I want fresh fish. I, mm-hmm. if, if I can't eat it within 100%. two days, and I only say two days because if I clean it, I'll put it in the refrigerator maybe for a day and then eat it the next day. I, mm-hmm. I only want to be within two days. But if you have to freeze it, and I don't know if it's just in my head or not, but if you do, un, if you thaw it out, you know, freeze it with a little bit of water, but then if you soak it in buttermilk, it takes away a little bit of the fishiness from frozen fish. Do you have you ever had mm-hmm. that experience? And why does that work? So, so it absolutely does. Uh, earlier, when I said that, there's nothing I would tell you not to do. Don't freeze fish. Okay. Now I'm going to go past that. So the, the buttermilk, it, it is something that think of like a brine. So when you just put something in salt water, the two process, the two items try to equalize themselves. That's why when you brine a turkey, the turkey becomes juicier. So the sodium and the water in the, wa- in the, in the water itself and the water within the meat try to equalize themselves that means some things come out some things go in the buttermilk is going to kind of do a similar thing it's going to almost wash your fish and mellow the the funkiness yeah because it's fermented too like there's some there's some chemical and highly reactions. acidic yeah there's some chemical reactions happening then happening there see there it is there's from yelling at the kids all day today I can't. I can barely talk. I'm glad you're well spoken because I'm not during this episode. I've been horrible with my words, but it it absolutely does work. And it, I'm glad some of the old timers that I, I used to work with were around because I was like, man, I don't want to eat any of that stuff. He's like, I'll soak it in buttermilk, bud. Just soak it in buttermilk, or they'll throw mustard on there and use mustard as mm-hmm. a binder, which is crazy. I don't. I don't understand how that works. And uh, you probably, you may or may not know or be able to explain it, but I don't understand how in the hell mustard is a very distinct taste, very distinct, but you smear it onto a piece of fish or even a piece of pork and you put your seasoning on top of there. You would never know that there was mustard on that piece of meat. Like, I don't, I don't know how that works, how, but you put it on a hot dog, and I'm like, Jesus, that is a lot of mustard on there. But you smear it all over some pork or some fish, you can't even taste it. But the heat changes what it is, and it, it tamps down those volatile compounds that light your nose up and kind of just leaves you with a, 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 bit, of, a bit of sharpness. So the ways that we cook things that are often with mustard are fried or mm-hmm. smoked, yes, like these big overpowering things. So the fattiness of the frying and the smokiness of the smoke mellow that oh. volatile. So it's the heat. The heat when when the heat it actually changes some of the some of the makeup of the mustard, which makes it a little a little less you know sharp and give you that little 
less of a mustard taste because you yes. just put mustard on your finger and put it in your mouth. You're like, uh, that's mustard. Like I can, I can taste like that. the mustard is, it, it's still there it, as like a back note, but it's the, it's the volatileness of the mustard that uh, part that, you know, that lights your nose up part that mellows out. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. I'm glad you got these answers for me. Cause this is stuff that I've, <laughs> Like I told you, I like to cook, but I don't know why I'm doing some stuff sometimes. I'm just like, well, this is how it was at the restaurant. So yeah. this is, you know, what I'm going to put on there. But the other day I was I was thinking, I don't ever cook salmon because I don't really eat salmon. I'm but, from Washington. I didn't oh, eat, you eat salmon a lot than of salmon. anything, any other fish in the world. Yeah, well, you eat a lot of salmon, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but I'd never barbecued it or anything because I don't eat salmon. Now, when we go out to eat, my wife will order salmon and she gets mm. it. But I'm just, I'm not a huge salmon eater because I, I don't really love the fishy taste. I mean, I think that's one reason why I don't eat um, frozen fish, but I'll mm. eat, I'll eat fresh fish. But I, I was kind of proud of myself. Cause I was making it, I was getting all the seasonings. I was doing my normal seasonings on there, but then I saw, I saw a uh, garlic sriracha or no, 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 I'm sorry. It was citrus sriracha. And I was like, Ooh, I bet this would be good on there. She likes some spice. And I'm like, and I want some, it'll give me a kick and it's the citrus, which goes well with, you know, any kind of fish. So I put it on there. She said it was delicious because I didn't even eat it. But I was proud of myself, man. I actually thought through the process. I didn't just go, okay, let me throw some, you know, I'm cooking a quote-unquote Spanish dish, so let me throw chili powder, cumin, and garlic on here. And then there, there, that makes it my, my Spanish dish. But I think what started me thinking through this is I really had some good Indian food the other day. And I was like, I want to be able to cook this because this is delicious and this is something that I don't get to eat very That's often. That's a tough road to go down, by the yeah, way. Oh, I know. And I was like, okay, now I got to know what spices were in this and what made this good. Because I'm getting to the point where I enjoy eating and I enjoy meals and we eat meals together. And the kids are starting to ask for different things and different flavors, which I'm all for because I don't, I don't want to have kids that just eat chicken nuggets and French fries. They're getting older too. I mean, they're eight, 10 and 13. So they're starting Mm -hmm. to, you know, get a different type of palate and they're starting to want different things. They're starting to want to go eat ramen. You know, they're starting to want to get these new flavors. So I'm like, all right, I got to kick up my flavor game. I got to start learning what pairs well with what and why this stuff is working instead of just using all of my garlic pepper every few weeks. Like, I, I got to figure this out. So that being said, too, what are some good pairings to pair with fish that aren't French fries and hush puppies, and why do they pair well whenever you're putting them with some fish? Side note: I have two kids. I'm a chef that can cook literally anything is mine. Come and to they my eat kids. chicken nuggets and French fries. They only eat grilled cheese sandwiches, raspberries, and goldfish crackers. Well, look, I'm t- <laughs> but you told me they were what three and five. Yeah. This, like I said, that's why I made the distinction. They are eight, ten, and thirteen. The thirteen-year-old is just now really starting to expand. The ten-year-old is. He he likes seafood and he likes like Korean barbecue and he likes kind of the Asian flavors. Mm-hmm. And the little one, the eight year old, 
since for the last two years, he is a garbage disposal. He will try any and everything. I'm trying to keep some snacks that I like that are just me, and they just keep liking every <laughs> everything that I buy bring home. That I'm like, okay, this is this is just for me. My uh, wife just she likes the seaweed, red pepper seaweed, and mm-hmm. she's like, okay, the kids aren't gonna eat any of this. Nope, that is wrong. The middle <laughs> one wants to sit there and grub on all the seaweed. But again, that didn't happen until like the last three or four years um, for the kids. So don't feel bad if if they're still eating chicken nuggets and French fries. When they get a little bit older, they're going they're going to start loving that dad is a is a chef, knows how to cook. And they are going to be spoiled to death and probably not going to want to go out to eat. Yeah. But so what what kind of stuff can we pair with our fish and why are we picking some of this stuff? Uh, a lot of times I'll think kind of uh, like what time of year really is it? And thinking of like right now being, you know, getting right into summer, uh, I'm, I'm kind of always going to lead towards vegetables and like off the top of my head, I start to think of like salad type things, which doesn't, you know, mean Caesar salad, but like tomatoes and basil and red onions and cucumbers, um, things that are light and refreshing that can complement that, which, you know, you can play into like some Italian tomato salads or some Russian cucumber salads. And always in my head is kind of a is it's a compliment rather than necessarily an overpower but like you said salmon earlier one of like my week weekday go-to salmon dishes is get you a piece of salmon cover it in sweet chili sauce i'll mix in sambal or in sriracha to make it spicier and put it under the broiler make some rice and put some broccoli under the broiler too some salt and some pepper and some garlic and that's an amazing dish that can be done real fast and you get the you know the the spice and the heat and the acidity to cut that fatty salmon and it just all works fantastic together but you can never go wrong with you know grilled asparagus or even even an actual like like light salad or you know heirloom tomatoes like if you're going to grill something it can go with all of those things easily. That if that, you're... that makes me feel so much better. Cause Mother's Day, you know what I made? <laughs> Salmon on the grill. We had a salt, pepper, um, little salad, and grilled asparagus. And I was like, "Yes, I think that, I think that's I, perfect. I think I hit that." Well, cause you want it to be you want it to be a lighter meal, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's where some people go wrong whenever they're cooking fish they want to they want to put too many heavy ingredients with it too too Mm -hmm. much heavy starches like if you're already if you're already frying it and you're already putting that kind of starchy element with your with your breadcrumbs and and everything else that's on there you don't necessarily want to keep adding starch on starch on starch Mm-hmm. throw some vegetables in there. Like you were saying, cucumbers. Cucumbers are great because they're cold. Mm-hmm. And it's it's weird. Light, refreshing, immediately I think of something cold or something yeah. chilled to go with it. But 95% of the time we're trying to get everything piping hot to eat with dinner. But it needs to be just cold, refreshing. Like I, I love to just have 
I mean, this isn't a side dish, but I love like on a hot day, whatever I'm eating, I can eat, you know, some baked chicken and just give me a whole bunch of watermelon because it's cold and it's refreshing and it's sweet. And if I'm eating a spicy piece of chicken and then taking a big, huge bite of some sweet watermelon like that is that is the best to me. That is the best. And if you want to make things like, you know, fancy and unnecessary, you can take that watermelon and throw red onions and feta cheese and cucumbers and and some some vinegar and turn that into a salad or do the same thing with cucumbers. Or if you do want starch and you really do love potatoes, think of a potato salad, but don't think of the, the normal one. Think of like like a Russian potato salad, one that has like a vinaigrette in it. Yeah. And then you still get your potatoes, but you also get something that complements your fish. And that, or if you're going to make the traditional fish fry, one thing I like to do is make my own tartar sauce. Instead of making it like a normal traditional way, make pickled red onions that like ones that you would throw in a taco. Chop those up, put those into your tartar sauce. So now you get a brighter, more vibrant, more flavorful tartar sauce. So instead of your just traditional fried fish, you got something that seems a little bit different. And I think that's that's a key. If you guys are real kind of foodies and you've been listening to everything that we've been talking about, and I'm not a fish eating expert. That's why I wanted to bring one on because I actually I don't eat fish that that often. I like to cook it. I like to prepare it. Um, I like to, you know, get some fish butterflied up for the family and things like that for my mom. My mom loves fish. Um, but one of the common themes through this whole time is you're talking about light, you're talking about refreshing, you're talking about bright, but you're also talking about getting that that acid, that vinegar in in something else that's going to complement that. That's why mm-hmm. you know we we talked about before too. Whenever you people have these fish tacos and everything, there's usually some type of slaw that's in there mm-hmm. that has a little bit of a vinegar or a vinaigrette or something like that in there because it just works well yeah. with the fish. There's just certain things that go together in that that vinegar and you know vinaigrette and some of that acidity works well with fish. A classic looks are classics for a reason. Like we're talking hundreds of years that somebody has done something along these lines so there's something to it and then uh, if you're gonna you you stick to that classic and then you just kind of tweak it to your own liking a little bit you know be creative so you can feel like you're you know doing something fancy now i'm allergic to i'm allergic to shrimp so i'm not able to really partake in a lot of these different like seafood dishes and things like that so i usually stick to the fish but I know one thing that a lot of people love is ceviche. Mm-hmm. And you talked about how that was like, that was one of your, you really like to cook that or, or oh, yeah. I can't, I can't remember that's exactly. Yeah. That's, that's, that's one of your staples. Mm-hmm. I, who do you think is the, you're talking about hundreds of years ago. Who do you think is the first person that was like, all right, let me mix all this stuff together. And then I'm going to just, squeeze some uh, lemon juice on here and we're going to call this good. Like, I I, I don't know who I the mean, first person to do uh, that was, but I like, have no idea. That just but, doesn't register to me. Like, this is absolutely not a fact, but my brain instantly goes to like Sicily, which is known for growing a lot of lemons. And they grow these big old lemons and it's right on the water. And 
maybe one day somebody had a fish and just squeeze some lemon on it. I don't know. I have no idea. You know, there's probably 50 people, you know, countries that say they invented it, you know. Uh, in my head, when I think of ceviche, I go to Peru. Peru is like the ceviche capital, you could say. Like, it's something that, like, they are known for a thing, and that tends to be ceviche. And ceviche is something that, I mean, they even, you can even do it, even though it's technically not ceviche, with vegetables. Like, there's every kind of fish you can think of in South America gets turned into some kind of ceviche. And so, so I want to stop you really quickly. So you said technically it's not still if it has vegetables. So what is a, a true uh, ceviche and what is like what we're eating now or what most people right. in, in Texas would, cause I'm sure it's different here than in Peru, than in Seattle, than in Miami. So what ceviche, when you hear people talk about it, they say uh, the acid cooks, the fish. What well, doesn't cook the fish? So when you do, when you, if this is a piece of chicken and you cook it, and these are the protein strands, they do this when you cook them. They tighten up, they coil up, and that's what toughens and tightens something. So what acid does to a raw thing like fish is it denatures the proteins. So it essentially does that similar process and in like the tightening, I guess you could say, of those proteins, which is what the thing that they call it cooked is. But That's why really the texture just, is different. It's really just firming it up. Yes. And also having a super high acidity level with salt is in g- generally, for fresh fish, going to kill off any nasty bacteria that you will potentially get in general. So that is, that's what the, like basic level root of what a like ceviche would be and then after that it's whatever you want to add to it and now it's always going to have that raw seafood and it's always going to have citrus but the citrus could vary and then after that you usually will see things like chili so different forms of chili paste or just chili flakes or jalapenos, serranos, habaneros. And then after that, it's really whatever you want. Anything that you can think of you want to put in there, you can. Some ceviches have tomatoes and onions in them. Some have avocados in them. Mangoes. Some have mangoes. Some have cucumbers. It's anything you want after you have the foundation of the seafood and the citrus. That could be lemon, lime, orange, pineapple, any, anything. Now, I would I would be remiss if if I know we didn't want to talk about recipes, but since you said that that is your jam, like give us a recipe for ceviche. What what mine will be saying, super basic. Like, what do you like? I will get let's let's just say snapper, and then uh, I like uh, ahi. Amarillo, which is a chili paste. You can get it on Amazon. It's A-J-I Amarillo. I don't know how to spell. It's, you know, a South American Peruvian chili paste. Lime, chili paste, avocados, uh, maybe cucumber, red onion, olive oil. Uh, Adding um, some form of fat, like an olive oil, kind of brings everything together and gives like a, like a lusciousness, like a, 
like a silkier mouthfeel to it all in general. And you can't really add too much. Like you want a lot of liquid in there and obviously salt and then any additional season you want and maybe even jalapeno and you let it sit, give it 30 minutes. Now ceviche is not a thing you want to eat the next day because it's a whole different ball game after it sits in acid. You make, make what you're going to eat. And then after that, you put it on whatever you want. So after it sits for a while, does it, does it end up turning back to mush or, or what happens to it? It, it can if you leave it long enough, but after, I mean, if you were to eat it the next day, it's just, it just texturally, it's just not, not the not same. Pleasing. It's not, not a pleasing thing usually. And then, I mean, people can eat it from anything from a saltine cracker to you know, tortilla chips. So you've, uh, you've circled back to Peru a lot. Is that one of your favorite areas to, you know, kind of take some influence from or, what are there any areas that have really influenced your style of cooking or even your palate, like things that you like? Like I was just talking about how I've really been on the Indian food kick, like since I had some really good Indian foods. And I think it's just because the, the different flavors that I'm getting from this Indian food, I'm not used to growing up in, yeah. you know, growing up in Texas. What, what areas have really influenced your own type of, flavor profiling and palate and things like that. So I, I think of Peru because of ceviche. Like if we weren't talking about ceviche, you wouldn't it, think of Peru. And yeah. Unless you're asking me about eating Guinea pigs, it's not a thing that I would even think of, but Peruvians eat millions of Guinea pigs a year. Cucuis. Uh I tend, I lend, I lend myself towards Asia being a guy, you know, that is, you know, grew up in an area with a lot of Asians, a direct connection between Seattle and Japan and uh, I personally backpacked Asia for, for, for months by myself with no plan, flew into Bangkok, woke up every day and said, figure it out. Um, I've been to 30 countries. So I don't travel to see a monument. I travel to eat. If there's something there that isn't food related, I'm not interested in going. Like there's obviously exceptions, but I don't want to go sit on the beach. How, how Unless you, that beach is in Indonesia. How do you keep yourself from being miserable, though? Because I'm the, I'm the same way, and I often find myself by after lunch, like, I'm so miserable because I want to go somewhere, and I want to try everything that I've never tried. And you can only eat so much before you're just like, Jesus, I don't, I don't want to eat anymore. Like, how do, you, how do you travel and experience all this food and just not be miserable? You do. You make yourself miserable. <laughs> okay, so there's there's you, no way around yeah. it. Okay, so you I'm get not to doing enjoy it, it wrong. After, after when you look back on it, you can be like, man, that was amazing. But I've gone places where we've been researching restaurants, and you say you were going to make a lobster roll, and when you know you end up in Maine, and you eat thirty lobster rolls in a day, or you go to nine restaurants in a day, and it's not fun at all. But you have to take notes and, and, and remember things. Traveling is a little different. If you're going to be somewhere for months, you don't got to go too hard all in one day. I'd still want to try every single thing at oh, breakfast. Like at do. breakfast, I'm like, give yeah. me the left side of the menu, yeah. all of it. I want to try it all. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been in, you know, Malaysia and go to a restaurant because there's a line and you don't speak the language. And you look to the table next to you and you say, 
I want, I want this, 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 and this. And next thing you know, I mean, I'm already a giant in Southeast Asia and I'm sitting at a table with 10 dishes. You, you're not going to be able to eat them all. So something about that kind of makes you feel like an ass because you're, you know, you could be in a country where somebody makes fucking $500 a year, but I'm here for a purpose. Yeah. You're there to eat. You're there yeah. to, to, to experience it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I need to, I need to branch out more. It took me until I got into my real, like into my thirties to really start branching out with all my flavors. And I'm kind of kicking myself in the butt. Like I wish I would have been more willing to try new stuff and, and try new flavors where before, like if I couldn't pronounce what it was, I wasn't going to order it. Like just cause I, now I look for stuff that I'm like, what is that? I don't know what mm-hmm. that is. I need to order it. The only thing I ask is cause I don't like uncooked onions. So that's the only thing I asked yeah. is, are, does it have uncooked onions? No. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. I want that and the thing beside it that I don't know how to pronounce that. that That's the dishes that I'm trying to go after. I, I, I try to express this upon people often. It's not a thing that I grew up with. I mean, I grew up with the, you know, in a well-done steak household. But millions of people eat a certain thing for a reason. It might be weird as heck to you. It might be something you're like, I'm not eating that. There's something to it, though. Mm-hmm. Like, if, if millions of people eat this thing, there's something to it. And the greatest and most important moments in life tend to happen around food. If tomorrow is your birthday, the first thing your wife's probably going to ask you is, what do you want to eat? Now, my mom can remember going to Chicago in the 70s. She can't remember a thing about that city, but she can remember she had a great meal. Now, can you put a value on that? Is a purse that's a grand a good thing and a meal that's a grand a bad thing? I can't say that. They're, they're, they're both. Oh, God. I'm, I'm just sitting there going, a grand for a meal. Whew. It happened. Like, it, 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 it's not often, but it's happened. Like I'm, I'm, I have not experienced fine dining to the the point that you probably have experienced fine dining. Like I kind of cringe about like a two hundred dollar meal. Like I'm like, eh, I don't know if I want to spend two hundred dollars. But I'm also to the point where I don't want to eat out somewhere if I can cook it at home. So I'm looking for places that I can experience the food and and you know find different things than I already know how to cook. Like mm-hmm. we we have a very and I don't want to get all sentimental, but we have a very short time on this earth and there's only a few things that you do every single day and you probably need to do to sustain life and eating is one of them. And you need to enjoy that. Like, yeah, I, I don't. I'm not one of the per- people who, you know, some of those bodybuilders and everything else. They're just like, I eat brown rice and chicken breast. Like, okay, cool, that's awesome. But mm-hmm. I want to enjoy my food, and I want to enjoy life and talking to people over meals. And one thing that we do at our house is we eat at the table for. You know, if there's 30 days in a month, we're eating at the table 27 of those days, 26 of those days. We may go out to eat or may have a baseball game and half everybody's somebody's eating at the bar. Somebody's walking around eating a hamburger like it happens. 
but that is some of the best times to talk to your kids, for your kids to learn things, for your kids to help you cook and just be around your family and have these type of conversations with them. And getting the kids involved with preparing the fish and cooking the fish. Mm -hmm. And like we were talking about, doing light meals, doing something light, that is a perfect time to get a kid involved or get your mother-in-law involved or somebody else to come in the kitchen. And it doesn't take much to do a salad or cut up some cucumbers to put on there or, you know, get some asparagus together. Like that is, that is a great time to have family join around you. And I'm not trying to preach to you guys. It's just, that's something that I was talking to you about. Like I'm passionate about cooking, but I don't really know exactly the whys on why I know what I'm doing, but I know why mm -hmm. I want to cook because everyone gathers around the table to eat food. Mm -hmm. Like the, that is a common the, yeah. thing. The The only difference between a professional cook or a chef and a regular person is the deep understanding of the why, because I know a lot of people that can cook things better than I can in their specific things. Everybody will tell you how the, you know, their grandma was the best cook of all grandmas ever, right? There's, there's something to that. And there's something that I can take from that. But there's also things where I'm like, I can't make this like that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because I technically know too much about the why. You, you, you don't sit there and go like, well, no, that ain't done. Like you, you don't just look at it like grandma can look mm -hmm. at it and go, oh, that is not, you yeah. are not putting enough grease in the bottom of that pan to, to mm -hmm. grease that pan. Like there, there's always just little bitty things that people who put love and put like their everything into some of the food, like you can definitely tell whenever they're, they're doing that. And it's hard mm -hmm. to replicate sometimes. Yeah. And that all, like, even what you just said wraps back into what I said. I don't think that 99% of people have ever thought about it. But the most important moments in life happen around a meal. Every holiday and every meaningful family moment, think about it, food somewhere. Yep. Every, and every if it isn't, time. it's it just happened, and now what are we going to go eat? Mm -hmm. Like, where are we going to go? Where are we going to hang out? Even if nobody's cooking, it'll be mm -hmm. at a restaurant or it'll be something like that. I mean, a, a side note, I was uh, – I was talking to my mother-in-law cause she's visiting here from Maine and she, uh, she got rid of my strainer. <laughs> I'd had this strainer since college. So she got rid of my strainer and she bought us new strainer cause it was broke and college was a long time ago. Like I've had this strainer for a while and it's been on its last leg and she threw it away and bought some new strainer. She's like, I hope, I hope you're not upset with me. And I was like, no, not at all. Like, a strainer i have no emotional attachment to a strainer but if you would have messed with any of my knives that i have over there or you would have messed with this cast iron skillet we would have had a problem because one of the yeah. things that i really really like probably my most prized possession is my grandma's cast iron skillet which was her mom's cast iron skillet so you know they they all have little markings and everything on it um, and this one was between, it was made between 1933 and 1937. Nice. So it's, it's almost a hundred year old skillet. 
That is my prized possession. I cook so much in that. Like, I tell the kids how it's my prized possession because hopefully one of the three is going to want to keep it and want to keep cooking. And when my grandma passed away, like, that's the only thing I wanted because, Mm -hmm. like you said, a lot of stuff revolves around the, the table. And when I would wake up, I'm not an early bird at all. Like, I can sleep till 10, 11 o'clock every day if you let me. But when we went and saw Mama, whoever woke up first got to choose what we had for breakfast. So I was the first one awake when we went to Mama's house, and she would cook me scrambled eggs in that cast iron skillet. Like, that is how well seasoned that thing is. She would cook, you know, scrambled eggs and bacon in that cast iron skillet, and that is one of my best memories of of anything anybody ever cooked. So that's like that's my prized possession. If you guys can have my kayaks, you can have my xenon reels, you can take all that. But if my house burns down, I'm getting the kids out and then I'm going back in for that skillet. My prized possession is a spoon. And uh anybody that's deep into restaurants would have known a, of a chef named Greg Kuntz who um recently ish passed away, but he had a restaurant called Lespinas. And to this day there's a spoon used around fine dining specifically to like physically cook with called the Kuntz spoon. And he didn't actually invent it. He found it. And then I don't know what kind of business deal came out, but he replicated it with his name on it. Since after that, I have an original before they said Kuntz on the back. And that, I think they're $13 today, but if, and I have, 10 grand in chef knives that I got, you know, going to Tokyo and getting hand and made hand engraved knives. And if one of those disappears, I'll be mad. If my coon spoon disappears, I'm not going to be okay. Yeah. That, that ain't going to have you going, you're going to be mad that that D end is going to come back out of you. Yeah. You're going to be, you're going to be looking for somebody. Yeah. Um, it, it, so you talked about the knives and before we get out of here, <clears> I'm going <throat> to ask one more question. Cause I've been, I've been seeing this and I'm, I'm trying to keep myself from ordering it. Have you seen the tumbler sharpener, the one that you roll across and it sets it at a certain degree? Um, it has a magnetic thing, and all you have to do is roll the sharpener across. I, I'm thinking about buying one because having the whetstone out and, and doing all that is just it's a chore. But what do you sharpen your knives with? Since you started the show out talking about having some good knives and everything, let's, let's end the show talking about some good knives. We can't all go to Japan to have any knives made, but we can sharpen up some knives. What? Do, how do you? How do you treat your knives? What are? What are? How do you baby them? Um, sharpen them? Everything. Well, my knives get treated about the same way as my kids get treated. I got a box or a tub full of whetstones, and I a couple of times. I mean, now it's different. I don't, you know, I'm not blowing through them the same way at home. But a couple of times a month, I'm going to pull out all the knives that I regularly use, pull out the whetstones, do a progression, work my way up, getting up to the, the 15,000 grit and make sure that I can literally shave the hair off the back of my hand with all of them. So you're, you're, is it, that's about once a month that you're sharpening up. I'd say two, two times a month in, in like, if I would like at the helm of a restaurant now, because now it's more consulting. If I was at the helm of a restaurant today, uh, I'd, I'd sharpen at least once a week. 
Once a week, okay. And but I just... don't do mechanical. Mechanical to me, you're going to have a harder time with consistent edges, but also they're going to take a lot away over time. Off the knife. Yeah, like I like I said, I have a ton of knives. I'm fortunate enough to have things that are stupid purchases, but somebody that made samurai swords for 10,000 years knows what they're doing. And if you buy that knife and you take care of that knife, it'll be around. So how far longer than me, how, how bad for your knives is, you know, it has the little V on there and you run your knife through it or you pull like, how bad is that for your knives? One would never enter my home. It's that bad. Yeah. Well, is it going to temporarily give you a sharp edge? Yes, but it's going to be an uneven edge too. You're not talking about perfectly even pressure. So it might be hard here, light here, hard here, light here, hard here, light here. And now you got nine different levels of sharpening. And over time, this is really what the blade looks like. It's it's waving. It's going to end up being a little not not serrated, but it's going yeah. to have it's going to have little waves in it. The easiest, best thing for a home cook to do is purchase a really good quality knife. If I could suggest one, there's a company called Made In, and it was made by and for chefs in an affordable category. They also make pots and pans that are really good. Well, hold on, hold on. Affordable for you. What is affordable? I'm going to say a Made In chef knife is 60 bucks. Oh, yeah, that's affordable then. That's not bad at all. Like they're made to be home knives. Yeah, All right. So their bad. biggest chef knife is a, their eight inch is $120 now. So it's, it's gone up in price. And, but that's a one time and a lifetime purchase. Yeah. It's called made in. And if you're a home cook and you, you don't need to sharpen your own knives. Every, if everybody lives in a city that has a, a, a place that sharpens knives, Take them there, have them sharpen them every other month, twice a year, whatever. The only thing I can suggest is keep your knives sharp. A dull knife is a dangerous knife because they slide off of things and into your hand. And when they slide into your hand, they're not sharp, so they don't clean and easy sharp cut you. So I said we were going to end here, but now I'm, now now I got more questions. So pots and pans, though, what what type of pots and pans are you cooking on normally? I'm going to do things different. I'm, I mean, I cook on restaurant type black steel pans, which are like not that ex- they're not expensive. You go to the, you know, your restaurant hardware, restaurant depot or restaurant supply and you get them and it te- it's the restaurant that is the kind of uh, pans that most restaurants cook in uh, carbon steel, thin, m- medium heavy-ish. But if I was going to say home cook, like my go-to would be made in because their cookware is, I mean like Alinea, which is one of the best restaurants in the world in Chicago. And at one time was the best restaurant in the world. They use made in pans. How bad is this, this non-stick Teflon coated stuff that we're cooking in? I use Teflon, but I only use Teflon for eggs. Teflon is not designed to be heated up super hot. First of all, and you need to never use metal in them. Like when you have a Teflon pan that's scratched up and it's nonstick anymore, where do you think that coating went? 
It's the you, pepper. It's the pepper you that you think was in your yeah. eggs. That ain't that yeah. ain't pepper. That's Teflon. Do not buy expensive nonstick pans. Period. Full stop. Buy the cheapest Target, Walmart, eight inch whatever nonstick pan. Put a paper towel in it when it's done with it. If you're gonna stack things on top of it, buy a plastic spatula to use in it. When it wears out, it was probably twelve dollars. Throw it in the gutter and get another one. What about Don't some, buy no hundred dollar pans. What about some of this nonstick. ceramic coated stuff? Like, how, what it's a, it's, it's is it just a gimmick or? I have yet to find one that I'm like, yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. Get you go to, you know, like Marshall's and get you the cheapest nonstick pan you can have because the best nonstick pan on the planet is going to wear out. And then now you don't spend 150 bucks on it. Now you got to get another one. Cause you want to, you want to scrape the bottom of it with that metal, <laughs> yeah. with that metal or with spoon a fork. To, yeah. Yeah. To get everything out of there. I, I cook the most, like I said, I love that cast iron skillet. I, I cook everything in it. I cook the most on the cast iron skillet Me too. and then a plain stainless steel pot. Like if I cook mm. anything in a pot, it's just my, my stainless steel pot. I, I hardly use any of our nonstick stuff anymore, but I love that cast iron skillet. And I guess it was just because my mom, but I like my stuff to have like a crispy coating on it and you can't get no crispier than a nice hot piece of cast iron, no matter pan frying something like even just sauteing something like you're going to get a nice, nice crispy, even coating. And it's driving me nuts because this house that we bought is it's got an electric range on it. And I'm, it's stubbied out. It's got the stubby for gas, and I'm ready to rip that thing out and put some gas in it if I can quit buying Xenon reels and building my own rods and buying an NK180 and everything else. Like, I, I, need to, I need to switch over to gas. So the, I use a lot of cast iron, and then the black steel pan is like a meeting in the middle of, the, of like the regular pan you think of and the cast. You're getting cast-like properties, but they're lighter. Now, do you have to do any kind of maintenance to those pans? I mean, do you need to season Similar them at to all? Cast. Or yeah, you want to season them. Uh, you don't want to, you know, let let water stay on them. They will they they will rust if you don't treat them right. But you can get to the point where you can slide the egg in them. Um, also, you don't want to use them for certain like highly. You don't make you don't want to make tomato sauce in them. Mm-hmm. Like there's just some things you just don't want to do. But use another pan. What do you then, what do you use to season it? Like how do you how do you season your cast iron? What is your just choice? Just whatever oil that happens to be around. Any oil I, on there? I use good olive oil in the places that you need good olive oil because you want to taste it. Like if I'm going to make dressings or I'm going to mm-hmm. use it in something that's not going to get cooked. Other than that, I buy a tub of soybean oil from Costco. You know the big boy and. I'm not, I use a lot of, I'll get clarified butter from restaurant Depot. Mm-hmm. I'm at home. The biggest misconception of chefs is going to be that they're fancy at home. Now they might do things that are fancy that you might think are fancy, but I'll eat a hot dog as often as I'll eat anything else. Cause well, you don't want to take work home. Like everybody else leaves work at work yeah. like you don't you don't want to have to come home and sit there and poach eggs and you know spend hours in the kitchen unless it's a special event or something yeah. I'm, I'm sure you like to 
use your talents to to cook something up for the wife or you know uh, i make all my wife's meals lunch yes. for work everything there you go guests that come over and things like that i actually i have found that the best thing to season my cast iron with is just a little bit of like straight up lard like yeah. just just a light and you'll you have to do it very very light and you know if you're putting too much on there if you can smell the lard like if you can smell it that's mm. too much like you it just needs to be shiny yeah. just just a little but, bit yeah. of shiny but that's one thing that's good about the um the electric range i've found that after you get done cooking and by the time you clean your pan it's still hot the mm. the range is still a little hot so i can season it and it's just perfect on there but i i got to i got to get rid of that but man i'm going to we got it. We got to end this thing. It's late. We uh, it's we've been going an hour and a half, and I'm sure there is a ton more that that we could hit on. But is there anything else you want to talk about? Like any anything in the kayak industry? Do you want to shot anybody out? Um, you know, maybe talk about some tournaments that you're you're looking forward to fishing or getting out there. Anything you got going on on the fishing side? Where people can find you and follow you? Um, just the next you can five give minutes me, uh... is yours, man any of the social medias uh um for i primarily go on instagram um th- i'm three the hard way on instagram tiktok we're, we're, i'm starting to kick off the 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 youtube um just my my name Drew smith on facebook uh you know shout out to you know you like you like you got down here at the bottom mariner sales and the, and, and the team over there uh they're always going to get you right Anything you need, any questions you have, you walk in there on the right day and you might not even need to talk to any of the people that work there because all the people that go in there are kayak people. And, you know, as you know, the kayak community is one that tends to take care of each other and help each other out uh, a whole lot more than, say, the bass boat community. But uh, I just uh, went in the water on, for the first time in my, in my hobby at Lake Texoma last week. It was supposed to be five mile an hour winds coming from the south. It, it was ended not. up being. <laughs> it ended up looking like a perfect storm coming from the north. And anybody that's ever been on Texoma knows that that lake gets ugly. With very little wind, it gets ugly. So we were there, considering saying, "No, nah, man, we're not going to do this." I fished in in you know in sustained twenties, and this was actually kind of scaring me a little bit. We ended up where I was like, all right, we'll get in. We're going to go around this point. We'll get into the, into the cove, into the marina, and we'll be protected and safe. I got on the boat. I'm getting blown. I'm trying to turn into the waves. I click my motor on, and right as I click it, I got hit broadside, and then I dipped, and then I get hit from the front, and we started going like this, and I just <laughs> jumped. I jumped out. I was like, I'm not losing everything. I mean, I got, you know, Mega Pass P5 rods back here. I got custom swim bait rods. I'm like, I'm not going in. Not with, I'm not flipping. It's not I, that I, cold. It's okay. It's not it was that warm. cold. You, you go jump in the water. I saw I the, out. I saw the, um, I saw the picture that you had on Facebook or Instagram that your, your, your life vest worked though. Whenever you yes, went sir. in, it inflated. How long did it take to inflate once you jumped in? Oh man, it was quick. It was, it actually scared me. Because I jumped in and I hit that water. And as soon as I was under, it popped. And I went up and I would say I was 15 yards off the bank. Uh, Hey, wear your PFD and your kill switch if you're going to have a motor. 
Because if I didn't have that kill switch, my boat was going out to the middle of that lake. Luckily, that wind was coming towards me and it just blew it back to the back of the cove. So I was able to, you know, backstroke it to the edge. And the buddy Abel that was with me went over. I walked the beach. Luckily, there was a beach. Got to walk the beach. Sat there in the kayak, man. I was just thinking, this is some BS, man. I think I'm about to get out of here. So, so were you wearing your kill switch? Because I, I, I was. I, I will like I, I'll admit I don't always wear my kill switch because I'm standing up. And well, I have a very like long line. I don't like the line being that. Like I need to wear my kill switch more often. I, I know I do because I that's going to end up happening to me, and I'm going to jump out, and my kayak is going to go way all the way across the marsh, and I'm just going to be like, yeah. well, guess I'm walking over there and. You know, balls deep mud for the next hour and a half. I have mine long enough that I can stand and I tether it kind of, you know, pushed as far back on the bottom of my PFD as possible. So it's out of the way. But I'm telling you, if I I wouldn't have had that on, I I don't know how I would have got that kayak back because there was nobody in a kayak that was going to be able to go get it. and There were no boats around. And that's a big, big lake. Yeah, and that's that that weather would have been tossing that sucker around everywhere. It would have been upside down. You you would have been you would have been pretty upset if you would have lost yeah. everything that's on that kayak. Because guys, if you haven't seen his kayak, check out. I have a uh, um, some pictures on my Facebook from the demo days, and I took some pictures of of your rig there because you got you got everything on there. Dual graphs. You had the new NK. Like it was. It was sweet, but go go check that out. Any anybody else or anything else you want to talk about before we get out of here, my man? Just shout out to Mariner Sales, Righteous Felon Craft Jerky, Hobie Eyewear. Oh, hey, if 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 Hobie Fishing Team, as soon as they get their application back up, we can cement that and uh, fish in Possum Kingdom next. We need some regional. We need some regional people from Hobie. That's we do. They're we in, need uh, some people out there for people to talk to from Hobie. Hobie's they're in a uh, transition period, you could say. Yeah, I want to. It's interesting. Well, we'll talk about this offline, but it's interesting what's going on with Hobie right now. Um, I I know some stuff, and that is not something we'll talk about on this show. Anyways, if you want a Hobie though, go check out Mariner Sales. And guys, I hope yes, to sir. see you out at the next. GRS. Gerald, man, it was a pleasure. Like I said, we're going to have to do this again. Definitely going to have to do this again. Um, But we're going to get out of here, bro staff. We'll see you later. Peace. Peace.